You're listening to Story City Church in Granada Hills, California. We exist to glorify God by leading communities into healthy relationships with Jesus and with others. And here is this week's message. So I want to read this, Colossians 1, 24 through Colossians 2, 3. Uh, and at the end of the reading, I'm going to say this is the word of the Lord. And I'm going to ask and invite you to say thanks be to God. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for you, and I am completing in my flesh what is lacking in Christ's affliction for his body, that is, the church. I have become its servant according to God's commission that was given to me for you, to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints." God wanted to make known among the Gentiles the glorious wealth of his mystery, of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. We proclaim him, warning and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone mature in Christ. I labor for, you, for this, striving with his strength that works powerfully in me. For I want you to know how greatly I am struggling for you, for those in Laodicea and for all who have not seen me in person. I want their hearts to be encouraged and joined together in love so that they may have all the riches of complete understanding and have the knowledge of God's mystery, Christ. In him are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Samir. Morning, y'all. Well, I'm pumped to be here. If I haven't met you yet, my name is Josh Jedeke. I'm one of the elders here, and I have the privilege of jumping in on our series Rooted, studying straight through Paul's letter to the Colossians. And I hope you understand the significance of what's been happening these last couple weeks. Every Sunday, we're picking up right where we left off the week before. We're studying verse by verse through the book of Colossians. And here's why I'm so excited for this series and the way that we're doing it. By studying straight through a, ver a, a, a book of the Bible, verse by verse, what it tells me about this church family is not only do we value the Bible, but we value the entire Bible. See, it would be very easy for us to say, well, let's do a sermon series on forgiveness or grace or, um, okay, here's a good one. This is really Christian-y. Joy. Aw. Let's do a sermon series on joy. And we could flip through the pages of the Bible and pick out all the happy verses, and we could just talk about the happy verses, and we'd all feel really good about ourselves. The problem is, in between those happy verses, there's some really weird stuff. Agreed? We as a church family don't want to censor the Bible. We don't want to skip over those passages because if we avoid them or try to sugarcoat them in some way, then we're missing out on some important truths that God wants us to know. So instead, we want to dig in and figure out, even if they sound weird at first, we want to understand, well, what does that actually mean? So we're going to study straight through the book of Colossians. Over the course of this series, we are going to read every single verse together as a church community. 
And when weird stuff comes up, we're going to stop and talk about it. Because those passages are in the Bible, and they're in the Bible for a reason. So I'm super excited to be in this series with you guys. I love getting to teach the Bible. I am just as excited to be back where you are next week as we continue to learn from Paul's letter. So last week, we saw Paul describing the nature and deity of Jesus. And we saw the apostle almost struggling to find words to describe the magnitude of Jesus Christ. Because who Jesus is and what he's done exceeds the limitations of human language. Words just can't do him justice. Today, we're going to see Paul's response to that. Because of who Jesus is and what he's done, how does that change Paul's life? How should that change our lives? Paul says he's working towards greater maturity in his own life, and he's also pursuing deeper maturity for the Colossian church. And for the first time, he uses this word mystery. And the idea that he is getting at is going to incorporate those two elements, mystery and maturity. So the big idea that Paul is getting at is that the mystery being revealed leads to maturity that's real. And we're going to unpack what that means today. Somehow, the mystery that God has revealed is going to offer a key to Christian living, a key to our lives. So we're going to unpack today what that mystery is and then how it can be transformative for us. So let me pray for us, and then we're going to dig right into this. Dear Lord, we thank you for revealing yourself to us through your word. We thank you for the work of Jesus on the cross, which is finished, which is final, and which is complete. Lord, we ask that you would open our hearts to hear from your word today. And we pray this in the name of your son. Amen. Well, when I was a kid, I did a lot of little league sports. I did some basketball. I did a lot of baseball, a little bit of soccer here and there. And when I was a kid, we, we didn't have all the cool bells and whistles like they do now. I mean, I look at some of these little league teams. They look like pro teams. I mean, they have all the cool training gear. They have all the latest tech. It's like a t-ball team, but they're sponsored by Adidas. Like, we didn't have all that stuff. And so when I was playing little league baseball... It was all over the place. Some teams would have more than others. A lot of times it was a hodgepodge where you'd have this one piece of like really cool state-of-the-art tech and then you didn't even have these other three things. Like not even the cheap versions. You didn't even have that. So when I was playing Little League Baseball, uh, sometimes I would play catcher and we didn't always have like the full decked out catcher's gear. You know, we would have that fat padded glove maybe the chest protector, but we wouldn't have like shin guards or like that helmet that makes you look like a hockey goalie. I mean, this was t-ball, so nobody's actually throwing anything at you. I guess you can get away with it, but we didn't have all the, the bells and whistles. So one season, it was early on in the season, we hadn't even played a game yet. We were still doing practice. My parents had dropped me off a little bit early, so my dad's sitting in the car in the parking lot, and it's just me and the coach out on the field for two or three minutes until other kids started showing up. We're, you know, unloading duff gear out of duffel bags or something like that, getting ready for practice. And the coach turns to me 
And I totally fell for this at the time. Looking back, I can see that he was kind of embellishing this and you know, making something that wasn't a big deal sound like it was a big deal just to get me excited for the season. And so he turns to me and says, can you keep a secret? He's totally playing this up, which what's eight or nine-year-old Josh going to say? Yeah, totally. I can keep a secret. He says, this season, we're going to have the full catcher's gear. I said, wow, that's amazing. I'm going to go tell my dad. And I run back to the parking lot. So in other words, after saying that I could keep a secret, once I learned the secret, literally the next words out of my mouth were to declare to the world that I was about to not keep that secret. Now, in my defense, I think in my eight or nine-year-old logic, somehow I saw the secret as like, from the other kids on the team. Somehow in my mind, my parents were sort of outside of this equation. But regardless, I didn't do a very good job of keeping the secret. I lasted about one and a half seconds. But what if I had been able to keep this under wraps? Well, I wouldn't have had to do so for very long. Like I said, the coach was kind of playing this up. He probably told the rest of the team later that same day in practice. But everyone found out pretty soon. But what if I had been so intent on keeping this secret that I continued to keep the secret for the rest of the season? Every game, every practice, I refused to talk about catcher's gear because I was so committed to keeping the secret. That would have been weird. Why? Because by that point, everyone already knew. It wasn't a secret anymore. In fact, even if no one had told you, Everyone in the stands at our games can see the catcher right there wearing the full gear. It it makes absolutely no sense to keep a secret that everyone already knows. So as we've been studying Colossians, we've started seeing glimpse of a heretical teaching that was gaining momentum in the city of Colossae. It combined elements of exclusivism, legalism. It kind of mixed and matched parts of different religions into a new philosophy. And it also had elements that said, hey, the the pathway to God is something that only certain people can figure out. You have to have this special wisdom or secret knowledge to get you into the inner circle. And only certain people can do that to find the way to God. It's easy for us to laugh at that, just kind of laugh that off. And yet we fall for the exact same thing all the time. We're always looking for the secret to life. We want to learn the secret to health, the secret to happiness, the secret to a better golf swing. What's the key? What's the trick? What has that person figured out that I'm missing? Why am I not in the know? Why am I not in the inner circle? Sometimes that philosophy can seep into our view of God. What's the secret to getting to God? What's the secret to making God happy with me? What's the secret to getting God to give me what I want? And that's where Paul's going to start pushing back. When the false teachers claim that they know the path to God and no one else does, Paul wants to make sure that the Colossians don't fall for that. He's going to say, first off, what these false teachers are trying to convince you of 
isn't even accurate. It's a false religion. But secondly, even if they were right, which they're not, it wouldn't matter because the pathway to God isn't a secret. It's out there for the taking. It makes absolutely no sense to try to keep this a secret because it's now public knowledge. You don't need a membership card or a secret decoder ring or some special wisdom. God has revealed this to us. So first off, Paul reminds the Colossians that the so-called secret to life isn't a secret anymore. And the way we know that is not because we've cracked the code and figured this thing out, but because God has revealed it to us. See, this heresy is what prompted Paul to write in the first place. So as a result, disproving this false teaching is going to be an undercurrent through everything that he says in this book. As he teaches some important truths to the Colossians, the reason that he's hammering these points home is so that they won't fall victim. The secret's out. God has revealed himself to us. So anyone who's trying to sell you on a new method or a magic potion or a secret decoder ring is wrong and dangerous. That's going to be an undercurrent. So with that context in the back of our minds, let's walk through this passage. We're just going to go verse by verse. Let's see what we learn. Starting in verse 24. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for you, and I am completing in my flesh what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for his body, that is the church. I have become its, you know what, hold on a second. Does something seem weird there? Does something seem off in that first sentence? Did Paul just say that something is lacking in Christ's afflictions? Was Jesus' death on the cross incomplete? Was it not good enough? What's he talking about here? So this is actually a really tricky verse to interpret. This is what happens when you go verse by verse. We're one verse in and we've already hit something messy. Uh, even the scholars who've studied Greek their whole lives will tell you this is a tough one. One principle for understanding the Bible is that we need to allow clear passages to help us understand the more difficult ones. So the one thing we're not going to do is allow a, a tricky, unclear passage like this to start redefining all of our other theology. Quite the opposite. We're going to let those clear-cut passages give us some boundaries and guardrails around what this potentially could mean. So in this case, we know from many places in Scripture that Jesus' death on the cross was complete. We don't have to earn our salvation. Jesus already did that for us. His sacrifice was perfect. That wasn't lacking anything. We know that from many places in scripture. Uh, the line starts with John 3.16 and it goes around the block twice. So what are we talking about? Remember where we are in this letter. You recall last week, Paul spent several verses describing Jesus and who he is. Jesus is the invisible God. Everything was created by him, through him, and for him. God made peace through his blood, shed on the cross. Done deal, already happened. In verse 22, he says, He has reconciled you, past tense, by his physical body through his death to present you holy, faultless, 
and blameless before him. That's a statement of completion. Here's how it ended. This is, the, this is where we left off last week. This gospel has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven. And I, Paul, have become a servant. Verse 24. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for you. Paul says, the work of Christ on the cross is finished. That's already happened. And I'm a servant of the gospel. So now... Now that that's done and I'm a servant of the gospel, here's what, looking, here's what living as a servant of the gospel looks like. So in this section today, Paul isn't talking about salvation. He's talking about his own suffering through his service. We're going to see several places in this passage where Paul talks about his own work. Verse 24, I rejoice in my sufferings. Verse 25, I've become a servant of the church. Verse 29, I labor for this, striving with his strength. Chapter 2, verse 1, I want you to know how greatly I'm struggling for you. Paul's working hard, and in the midst of this, he wants to continue to grow himself. He wants to become more like Jesus. He wants to selflessly give of himself for the benefit of others the way that his Savior gave of himself. But as much as Paul's suffering, he still has a long way to go. So when it says, I'm completing in my flesh what's lacking in Christ's afflictions, the lacking isn't referring to Christ. The lacking is referring to Paul's own life. I'm completing in my flesh what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. Some translations say in regard to Christ's trans afflictions. So in other words... I'm completing what's lacking in my own suffering compared to Christ's suffering. Christ's suffering is the ultimate example of suffering. That's not lacking. What's lacking is Paul's ability to live up to Christ's model. So Paul wants to be able to suffer for the church the way Christ suffered. He's never going to get there, but that's what he's striving towards. He wants to selflessly give of himself, sacrificially serving the church more and more, and more, just like Jesus did. So that's why Paul says he's not only a servant of the gospel, as we saw last week, he's also a servant of the church. And in verse 25, he says, I have become its servant according to God's commission that was given to me for you, to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. God wanted to make known among the Gentiles the glorious wealth of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. So in this next section, Paul tells us that God has revealed what we didn't even know that we didn't know. And in the first time in this letter, he uses this word mystery. It's going to show up three times in our passage today. This is a very important word. To understand what Paul is getting at here, we need to understand the distinction between a biblical mystery and a Scooby-Doo mystery. See, in Scooby-Doo, pretty much one of our national treasures, by the way, uh, in Scooby-Doo, they were always trying to solve a mystery. They had to investigate and find clues and put together the pieces. A mystery was something they had to figure out for themselves. The Bible intends something very different when it uses the word mystery. 
It's not that God is hiding and we have to figure out the way to get to him. The world isn't this cosmic escape room that God has designed and we have to crack the code to get to him. That implies that God is playing games and kind of almost just trying to trick us, just messing with us. But the God of the Bible isn't hidden. The God of the Bible wants to be known. He wants to have a relationship with us. In the Bible, a mystery refers to something that was previously unknown, but now has been made known. We see this in verse 26. The mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. Next verse, it was hidden, but God wanted to make it known among the Gentiles. So it's not this idea that we have to somehow figure it out. It's actually that we can't possibly figure it out. God could have set up the whole system, the the gospel as we know it. Jesus came to earth, lived a perfect life, died as a sacrifice, rose again. God could have done all that and then not told us about it, not revealed it in scripture. We never would have figured this thing out. That's a mystery. Something that was not only unknown, it was unknowable but now has been made known, now has been revealed. Remember our undercurrent? See, this also disproves the false teachers who said that only certain people with a special knowledge could find God. Paul says, you don't need a secret knowledge. It was hidden, but now it's been revealed to the saints, even to the Gentiles. So what exactly is the mystery? That's, that's what the Bible means conceptually, but what is the mystery we're talking about? What is it that's been revealed? What's at the end of this last verse here? God wanted to make known among the Gentiles the glorious wealth of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Christ in you. See, the Old Testament is the story of how God brought about the Messiah. It follows the lineage of Jesus. Page after page, people are looking forward to the day when God would save them. So the mystery wasn't that the Messiah was coming. They knew he was on the way. The mystery was how personal salvation was going to be. They wanted a military leader who was gonna come and save them from their physical earthly persecution. And God says, yes, we'll get to that. But first, I want to save you from your own sinful heart. I want to save you from yourselves. And I'm going to come into your life on a personal level to transform your heart. The mystery is that everyone could have the opportunity to have a personal relationship with God through Jesus in our lives, indwelling us with the Holy Spirit, transforming our hearts. We are now identified with Christ. The most important thing about us is that we belong to him. And that produces in us what Paul calls the hope of glory. Hope in the Bible is always a future hope. It is looking forward to the day when Jesus will return and take us with him to his perfect kingdom. That was the hope in the Old Testament. That was the hope in the New Testament. That's our hope today. It's not a hope that the pains, struggles, and hardships of this life will ever go away. They might, 
They might not. God doesn't promise that. Rather, we have a confident hope that there is something bigger, better, and beyond this present life. And that's eternity with our king. So by disclosing this mystery, God has revealed to us what we didn't even know that we didn't know. So now that the secret's out, as we read the remainder of our passage, we start to see Paul's response to the mystery of Christ in you being made known. He sets a powerful example for us that's transformative in our lives. Now, before we read this last section, nobody freak out, but you may have noticed earlier, we're about to read straight into a new chapter and keep going. It's going to be okay. See, this is something else that happens when you study verse by verse. And, and when we see a new chapter heading, sometimes we have a tendency to think that, okay, we've finished one issue and now we're going to talk about something else. But remember, Colossians and most of the New Testament were written, by, uh, were written as letters. They were one document written from one person to another person or a church. Before my wife Tracy and I were married, our entire dating relationship was long distance. Uh, we didn't live in the same city. Uh, we didn't live in the same state until after we were married. And so at times, because I missed her, and also because I'm a baller, obviously, I would write Tracy a good old-fashioned love letter. Does it make me sound old? I would write it with a feather pen, and I would send it on horseback with the Pony Express. It's, it's a love letter, guy. What do you want, a love email? That just sounds weird, right? So in these letters... I'm not going to tell you what I wrote, but what I didn't do was to say, Dear Tracy, <clears throat> chapter one, your eyes. And I would talk about all the things I love about her eyes. Chapter two, your smile. No, it's a letter. It's all one thing. I might throw in a new paragraph here and there, but I'm not going to number the chapters. Same with the New Testament. Paul is writing a letter. It's all one document. The same with the, any letter in the New Testament. He didn't put in chapter numbers. The chapter and verse numbers actually weren't in the Bible originally. We have added those over time as scholarly research increased and also just so that you and I could find the same passage on a Sunday. It's just a tool for organization and convenience. Think of it like an address. If I gave you a address of a home here in the valley, street name and a house number, that would be enough information for you to find the house. That would get you to the front door. But the address, the street name and house number, doesn't tell you anything about the people who live there. How many people live there, how long they've lived there, what they're like. All it does is get you to the front door. So in the same way, the chapter and verse numbers don't tell us anything about what a passage means. They're just addresses to help us get to the right place. So as you're reading the Bible, whether it's in your missional group here on Sundays or on, the, on your own, Realize that when you see a new chapter number, it doesn't mean, okay, the author has completely finished one topic, and now we're going to start talking about something unrelated. That might happen occasionally, but the overwhelming majority of the time, the author's train of thought keeps going straight through a new chapter. And that's what we see as we go into Colossians chapter 2 here. So let's pick it up at verse 28. We proclaim him... Warning and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone mature in Christ. I labor for this, striving with his strength that works powerfully in me. For I want you to know how greatly I'm struggling for you, for those in Laodicea and for all who have not seen me in person. 
I want their hearts to be encouraged and joined together in love so that they may have all the riches of complete understanding and have the knowledge of God's mystery, Christ. In him are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Paul's final emphasis today is that real maturity is rooted in the mystery of Christ. Paul has just declared that the mystery is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Now we see what he does in response. He proclaims that. He proclaims the gospel. And just for good measure, one more pot shot at the false teachers. We proclaim him, warning and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone mature in Christ. This isn't something that only certain people get. The gift of God, the mystery is available to everyone. So in response to the mystery, we see what Paul did. He proclaimed the gospel. But we also see the why. The goal of his teaching was to present everyone mature in Christ. Everyone, believers and unbelievers. See, unbelievers need to hear this because they are not yet in Christ. They don't have the hope of glory. But believers need to hear this too because we forget. We're a fickle people. As that old hymn reminds us, we are prone to wander and we need to be reminded. This is why at this church, one of our pillars is gospel-centric preaching. We all, even as believers, need to repeat and rehearse the gospel in our minds and hearts. We need to be told that Jesus came to earth. He lived a perfect life. He died as a perfect sacrifice for us. And then he rose again, defeating death. And that when we chose to believe, placing our faith and trust in him, we receive forgiveness. We receive eternal life. We now have Christ in you, the hope of glory. That's the gospel. And if you attend here, you're going to hear that over and over and over because we need to hear it over and over and over. We need to hear it, but we should also be the ones proclaiming it. Notice in this verse and only in this verse, Paul switches from I statements to we statements. We proclaim him warning and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone mature in Christ. Paul brings us into this. The entire church should be all about proclaiming the gospel, all about proclaiming Christ in you. Because if everyone needs to hear it, then everyone else needs to be saying it. You need to hear this because you need to be reminded That's why you have me, who just told you the gospel for the thousandth time. But I need to hear this too. Who's going to tell me? Well, that's why we have Stephen Sandridge. He's going to speak gospel truths into my life. So that when I feel like my world is collapsing and I'm getting really down on myself, he's going to remind me what the Bible says about who I am in Christ and what that means for my identity. But wait, Stephen needs to hear gospel truths too. Who's going to tell him? Well, that's why we have YouTube videos. So, no, that's why we have people like Francis and Christine Brown, people who know the Bible forwards and backwards. They're going to tell Stephen that because you have Christ in you, now you have hope. You have the hope of glory. 
We all do this together. Paul says he's working towards maturity for the Colossians, for the Laodiceans down the road, for people he hasn't even met yet. And in the last two verses, we see the fruit of that maturity. We see why Paul is laboring and struggling and suffering. He says, I want to present everyone mature in Christ because I want their hearts to be encouraged and joined together in love. Maturity leads to encouragement of others and maturity leads to unity among the body of Christ. See, your maturity is not for your own glory. Maturity is not something to selfishly flaunt about like we hit some kind of workout goal. Look at me, I just benched a new max, it's a personal record. Look at me, I'm so much better at forgiveness than I used to be. I'm so much more patient. Look at me, do you see how much I've grown in humility? I'm the most humble person that I know. If we're working towards maturity just to show off our growth, we're not doing it right. In actuality, we work towards maturity, not for our own glory, but for each other's benefit, for each other's maturity. I grow to serve you. See, if I'm genuinely concerned for your well-being, I legitimately deep down want you to thrive, well, I'm going to want to be the best support for you that I can. But in order to support and encourage you in the way that you deserve, I need to grow more compassionate. I need to become a better listener. I need to learn the truths of the Bible better so that I can speak them into your life when you need them. I need to become more mature so that I am better equipped to help you mature. You need to pursue growth in your life so you are better able to help me grow. We all do this together. In fact, this is why we exist as a church. We have discipleship rhythms that help us speak the truth into each other's lives. Help us rehearse the gospel with one another. As we do that, the whole church grows in maturity. And when we all grow in maturity, it leads to a feeling of greater encouragement among us, and it leads to greater unity in the body of Christ. So here are a few examples. This isn't all of them, but here's a couple ways that our discipleship rhythms play out in practice, how they help us all mature together. When we gather on Sundays to worship in services, we are proclaiming the gospel through the lyrics of the worship songs as we lift our voices in praise. We are rehearsing the gospel when we open up the Bible and study God's word together. We are even modeling the gospel to each other when we choose to stand up for the reading of God's word or the worship music. We're setting an example for each other of what reverence to God and his word looks like in the posture of our bodies. So when we worship in services, we are setting an example for one another. Here's what it looks like to live out the gospel. Here's what it looks like to give God the glory that he deserves. When we serve in teams, 
Some of us struggle with volunteering because we feel like we're not contributing. Especially in church, sometimes it feels like what we've been asked to do is kind of trivial. And yet look at what that's working towards. When we serve in teams, whether it's with our facilities team, getting this building ready, setting up tables and chairs, if it's the hospitality team, making and serving coffee, we are creating a place that is going to welcome people in so that they can grow in their maturity with God. If they don't know Jesus, they have the opportunity to find him. If they already know Jesus, they have the opportunity to learn how to follow him better. If we're volunteering once a month in kids' ministry, not only are we pouring into the next generation of believers, we are also providing opportunities for parents to be here in service who wouldn't be able to do so otherwise. So when we serve in teams, we are creating a space that will allow others to grow in their own maturity. But in order to do that, we need to grow in our own maturity. We need to become more humble. We need to grow in humility so that we're willing to serve on a team that doesn't get a lot of glory, but is instrumental in allowing others the opportunity for them to give God glory. Lastly, when we live in groups, oh man, our missional groups are like a maturity incubator. You throw a bunch of random people in a living room and you expect them to get along? From a worldly perspective, no way this is going to work. There's way too many viewpoints, backgrounds, ethnicities, nationalities, opinions, way too many competing pro football teams. <laughs> How is this going to work? How is it that we all get along so well and frankly have as much fun as we do in these groups? Christ in you. What we have in common as brothers and sisters in Christ, that creates a bond that is infinitely more powerful than the things that are different. And as we do life together, praying with one another, encouraging one another, walking through hard times together, even serving others in the neighborhoods that we call home, I grow in maturity. And when I grow more mature, I am better equipped to help someone else mature so that they are encouraged to help someone else so that that person has more confidence to help another person grow. This isn't easy. It's hard work that we pursue as apprentices of Jesus. It takes all of us working together. How are we supposed to pull this off? How does Paul pull this off? We mentioned earlier all the descriptors he gave of his effort. I'm struggling for you. I'm striving. I'm laboring. I'm contending for you or suffering. I'm exhausted just thinking about all the stuff Paul's doing. How does he do this? Verse 29. I labor for this. Striving. With his strength that works powerfully in me. Paul's working hard. Paul's working hard for the church. But Jesus is working hard for Paul, empowering him, sustaining him. Paul has a supernatural strength enabling him in his life. And so do we. When we feel like we can't go on, Jesus is working in our hearts to help us keep going 
to push forward, to remain faithful. How does that work mechanically, biologically? It's a mystery. But the mystery is Christ in you. Now, all of this comes into play when we celebrate communion. See, communion is not an individualistic act. Communion is a community practice where we are all rehearsing the gospel. We are repeating the gospel to ourselves and to each other, proclaiming with one voice the sacrifice that Jesus made for us and the commitment that we have made to follow him. We do this together. Communion is gushing with unity. So I'm going to pray, and then as we take communion together, you can get the elements on the sides, come back to your table, and take the elements as you feel led. As you do, remember that this is something we're doing together as the body of Christ, and there's unity in that. Pray with me. Dear Lord, your word reminds us that as iron sharpens iron, so one person sharpens another. Lord, we pray that you would enable us to grow and mature in the ways that would equip us to better serve others in their own growth and maturity. Lord, we thank you for revealing this beautiful mystery to us. And we pray all of these things in the name of that mystery, Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you for joining us for this week's message. If you'd like to join us in person, our services are Sundays at 10 a.m. and we're located at 11011 Havenhurst Avenue in Granada Hills. Find us on Instagram at StoryCityGH or online at StoryCityChurch.com. Go and be the church.